Welcome to Proven Improbable. I'm your host, Maurice Jackson. Joining us for a conversation is Ross McElroy, the COO and Chief Geologist for Fission 3.0, a uranium project generator and property bank. Mr. McElroy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Maurice. It's great talking to you today. Yeah, glad to have you back on the program to share the value proposition of Fission 3.0. Before we begin, Ross, I'd like to begin with some basic fundamentals regarding uranium. For someone new to the uranium sector, what is uranium and where is it used? Uranium is really uh, all about energy. So the way we use uranium is for nuclear fuel. That's basically the fuel that runs reactors. You know, globally, uh, nuclear power uh, constitutes sort of, I don't know, between 15 to 20% of the uh, electrical requirements. So that's really where the majority of the uranium is used. There is some, of course, that's used for strategic purposes on a country-by-country basis. Um, you know, for more for the, the Department of Defense uh, reasons, but really the majority, the vast, vast, vast majority of, of uranium is used to fuel nuclear reactors. Provide us with some metrics on how abundant uranium is in the Earth's crust and correlate that to the average grade that is found versus the grade that is needed to define an ore deposit and a future mine. Well, Uranium is actually one of the most abundant elements in the Earth. It's uh, kind of ubiquitous. It, it's, uh, you'll see it throughout the, um, the Earth's crust. There is you know, trace amounts of, of uranium present, um, primarily in, in uh, volcanic and igneous rocks, um, in sedimentary rocks. It's, it's around. They're, uh, on a deposit level, there's actually uh, a number of uranium deposits around the world um, in every continent uh, on the uh, planet and in many countries. What, uh, but if we just look at it on a global basis, the average grade of a uranium deposit worldwide is around 0.1 to 0.15% U308. Um, now, if you compare that to, say, the deposits in Canada, they're orders of magnitude higher grade in Canada. In fact, we're talking we're, uh, orders of magnitude of 10 to 20 times that of, of the global grade. So, you know, the, although I've given you the average grade, most of those deposits at those lower grades, at the average grade, are really uneconomic deposits. So we need grades that are generally much higher than the 0 0.1, 0 0.15, uh, if it's going to be an economic deposit. And that's what Canada has. Canada has very high-grade deposits, so the uh, economic uh, metrics are just that much more um, attractive in, in Canada. Now that we've identified uranium's utility, what can you share with us from a supply and demand perspective? Well, it's, a, it's fairly simple. Um, to understand what the demand uh, for nuclear energy is, in other words, uranium, um, if we, you know, we can just multiply the number of reactors around the world that are currently operating, um, and you know the fuel consumption rate, and you know, just to put it in, in pretty broad terms, if we're looking at your average 1,000 megawatt reactor, um, they require just under 500,000 pounds of uranium a year. So if we look at the the global 
reactors, uh, the number of, of reactors around the world, we're over 400 and uh, what's the number these days, about 450 reactors around the world. So you, know, you can see that the the need for uranium is, is uh, on an annual basis is um, you know, in, in around the realm of, of almost 200 million pounds of uranium. How does the nuclear plant in Fukushima, Japan, fit into this narrative? Well, Japan historically, up until the uh, Fukushima event of 2011, uh, was one of the main users on a country basis um, worldwide. Japan, I think, consumed almost 20% of the uh, the world's uh, nuclear uh, power. In other words, the world's annual production of uranium was used to run the, the Japanese reactors. Um, in 2011, of course, we had the magnitude 9 earthquake followed by a tsunami, and this is what damaged the Fukushima facility. Uh, interestingly enough, even with that magnitude of, of an earthquake and the uh, soon-to-follow tsunami, the reactor still did not breach. I mean, the housing that surrounded the, the reactor uh, was damaged, and this is where um, some of the radiation leaks came from. But um, but the reactor itself actually held, and so the damage was actually very, very limited and, uh, and manageable. But what happened is overnight, Japan uh, shut down all of its nuclear reactors, and in other words, all 52 reactors I think they had working at that time went offline, and that uh, caused disruption to the uh, supply-demand situation globally. Well, what's happened since then is Japan is slowly coming back on. I mean, their alternatives for power are pretty limited. Japan doesn't have very much of its own resources, if any at all, so they import uh, whatever, um, whatever energy that they need, um, be it in natural gas now, in, in nuclear, so there, it's important for Japan to, uh, you know, to, to be able to operate these factories that they're running. I mean, they're a, they're an exporting country around the world, so they do re, they do have high energy requirements, and they also have the requirements for inexpensive power. So Japan is coming back onto the um, scene as far as nuclear power. You know, we're seeing them now. Uh, up, they've got eight reactors that are currently back up and operating. There's 17 reactors that are in the near-term uh, licensing for uh, approval to get them restarted again. I think the bottom line is uh, where prior to Fukushima, Japan depended on nuclear energy for at least 25% of its, uh, its electricity demands. I think by the time 2030 approaches, Japan is supposed to be right back up to those same levels. So they are coming back on. They were always a, an important major consumer of, of nuclear power, and um, and I think we'll see them right back to the uh, right back to the equation again here in the very near future. Uranium, next to gold, is known as the other yellow metal, and here's why. Ross, let's step back to the last bull market in uranium, which was if one was selective with the uranium holdings, they would have had generational changes in their portfolio. What was the spot price during the last bull market? Well, in 2002, uranium was around 
I don't know, about $15 a pound. This is on the spot market. So that's what uranium was trading for. In 2003, 2004, we really saw the liftoff of the price of uranium. And in fact, it, it peaked at 2007 to around $140 a pound. So it went almost a tenfold increase in the price of, of the commodity between 2003 in 2007. Um, the peak at 140 didn't last particularly long, but it was, uh, you know, had a, a, a slower decline um, till about 2008, nine. it stabilized, um, and then it peaked back up again. But it really, it was holding steady. I guess this is the point I would want to make, is that the, we were starting to see the sort of a steady state price of between $50 to $70 a pound. And then the Fukushima event hit that we talked about in 2011, and that really uh, threw the whole the whole pricing structure uh, right out the window. And we've been sort of working in our uh, recovery ever since. What is the spot price for uranium today? Currently, we're about $28 a pound uh, for uranium. So... Um, you know, it has recovered. We're off the bottoms of, uh, you know, $17, $18 a pound just a couple of years ago. It's making its way back. But maybe the important point here to note is we're still at prices that, that the majority of mines around the world are not profitable. Even the lowest cost um, producers are really not operating in an environment where they can make money with uranium prices where they're at right now. And so what we've seen is that the, uh, you know, the, the supply is starting to be uh, restricted as the producers are taking a lot of that uranium off, off market. They're not supplying it to the utilities at this cheap price because they're, it's, it's not a, you know, a working uh, business model to, to lose money in the long run on the mining of the commodity. So we are seeing an improvement in the price of uranium, and it's been... You know, it's been about a year and a half in the making. It, it's gone up from the $18 that I mentioned to about $28 a pound. But it certainly has a lot uh, more growth, uh, more room to, to move upwards even before we can start to get uh, production back online to meaningful uh, levels. And what is that uh, spot price that companies right now, uranium companies, I should say, for them to earn their cost of capital? Is the number around $60? For spot price of yeah, uranium? I think I think you're right. We're seeing uh, prices that, that globally they have to be in the sixty to seventy dollar a pound really to bring on any meaningful production. I, one of the clues that I look at when we look at the best uranium mines out there, the lowest cost producers, those would be you know like the MacArthur River deposit in in Canada's uh, Athabasca Basin and in, in northern Saskatchewan. That is one of the best uranium mines in the world, the certain largest, highest grade operating mine. Cameco took that offline um, because the prices of uranium, where were they were at? They weren't making any money on this, uh, on the mining of this deposit. And, um, you know, the, some of the, the stories I hear is that they won't, uh, turn that mine back on into being a producer until the, you know, the price of uranium is somewhat north of $40, maybe 45 something in that realm. It, you know, I don't have an exact number there, but it does tell you that if you're going to even bring back the best 
of those deposits, uh, you really need prices that are something north of 40 to 45. And as we mentioned earlier, the you know the price for even the other deposits around the world are probably closer to 60 or 70 dollars. So you can see there's still lots of room for improvement. The current price of uranium does not support the fundamentals. What correlations do you see today that may exceed the returns from the last bull market? Well, it's, a, it's sort of an elastic uh, situation. I think that the longer we keep depressed prices, and the, yet the demand is still there and growing, reactors are being built, the need to fuel these reactors, uh, that's not stopping. And in fact, it's growing. And if you have the, you know, the primary suppliers of uranium, i.e. the mines, um, that are not supplying it, the, the longer that the prices are low, the more rapid that climb will be, uh, you know, in the price of uranium when it does correct. And so, you know, I think that, you know, there's a possibility as, as I've heard, uh, uh, some analysts call it a, you know, a violent reaction upwards to the price of, of uranium. I mean, this is, you know, it, it, I think we're going to see some substantial price increases within, uh, you know, some short uh, vision of time, maybe a year or two or three, something in that realm that I think will be, you know, quite meaningful. And uh, so, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. But the longer it stays depressed, the uh, the more likely and quicker the rise will be when it does come. Ross, you've provided a compelling case on the fundamentals for uranium. And I know audience members may be asking, how will all of this demand for uranium be met? Mr. McElroy, please introduce us to Fission 3.0. Sure. Well, Fission 3.0 is a, um, it's a uranium explorer. Uh, this is a company that we spun out of Fission Uranium Corp., our uh, larger company back in 2014 when we uh, bought out our partner on the Patterson Lake project, and um, and in, in so doing with that with that process of that arrangement, um, we spun out our non-core assets, as you were, um, the more grassroots exploration projects. So we've been able to build up a an exploration portfolio primarily focused in the Athabasca Basin. And you know, remember, the Athabasca Basin is Canada's only producing uranium field. Um, that's where, uh, you know, the MacArthur River deposit is. This is where Pigeon Uranium has the Triple uh, R deposit. Um, and, you know, these, there's some fantastic deposits out there, and that's what we're exploring for in Pigeon 3.0. We're looking for the next high-grade uranium deposit in the Athabasca Basin. You referenced that you're a project generator. There's a lot of ambiguity regarding project generators. Please share the virtues and why Fission 3.0 took on the project generator business model. Well, project generators are really uh, all about sharing the risk. So um, in our case, uh, what we do very well is uh, pick, pick ground. We've been able to strategically stake ground in the Athabasca Basin. Um, we've made discoveries on on two of our properties, and the uh, first one in a company called Fission Energy that we made the discovery in our Waterbury Lake property, and, and later on in Fission Uranium Corp with uh, on our PLS property. Um, and that uh, has been situations where we've had joint venture partners 
sharing the risk, sharing the cost with others. Um, you know, to use the motto, what we do is we use our brains and other people's money. That's really what we're good. Uh, you know, that, that's basically the model that we have. So we have some a very highly trained technical team that's that's you know exceptional at picking out uh, high quality projects. Um, we attract other people that are looking to get into the uranium business, looking to partner up with a team such as ours and uh, and join us for the ride to make they make a discovery. So it's really all about sharing risk, and that's really what the project generator model does. It's our land, and we partner with good quality people that um, that can fund the project, and, and that's how they earn into it as well. Do you currently have a joint venture partner? And if yes, who and what are the terms of the relationship? We have had joint venture partners in the past and very successful ones. As I mentioned uh, earlier, I, on our water break project, um, we had a partner with the Korean utility uh, called Kepco. Now, so they earned in by spending a certain amount of, uh, of money on the property each year over, you know, the course of a, of a, um, of a three year period. And what we did with that, we were able to make a discovery using, using the money on that project. We made a discovery, built up the, uh, the, you know, the, the resource estimate on there and eventually sold that asset. So that was how our uh, shareholders were able to take advantage of, of our monetizing on the property. Um, I guess we could say the same with the PLS project, uh, of which we now own 100% of it, but that was also a, a partnership where we shared in, in the risk early on and in the money early on with, with our partner. We eventually bought them out in 2014, but uh, that was uh, another example of a successful joint venture partnership. Um, so, you know, those uh, e- each one of the, the deals would be a little bit different from each other, but... Um, you know, it is a model that we think works very well. Uh, I will note that um, in our uh, property down in Peru as well, we have a partnership that uh, we, you know, we're still looking to finalize the deal. But um, you know, this is this is one where another uh, group has, you know, approached us. Uh, they they're interested in in the potential of the property down in Peru, and so they'll spend a significant amount of money having us as the operator, and uh, hopefully we'll make a discovery down in Peru as well. Well, you've just alluded to what my next question is, is Fission 3.0 has 18 projects in their project bank. Now, they are strategically located in premier high-grade uranium districts in Canada and Peru. Mr. McElroy, introduce us to the Fission 3.0 project bank. Yeah, exactly as as you've said. Um, we have 18 properties in the Athabasca Basin. You know, our uh, properties. We think that everywhere in the in the Athabasca Basin has the potential to host high grade uranium projects. Um, one of the keys that we look for is looking for deposits that will be shallow. So, uh, in other words, the closer a deposit is to surface the easier it is to uh, build the case that this could be a, a project that could go into production. The, you know, it's an easier mine to develop the closer it is the surface. Really deep deposits are challenging. They still exist, but they're challenging. Um, eventually, they, they cost more money to 
find they cost more money to uh, get out of the ground they're just uh, you know they're just another level of, of challenge so if you look at our 18 properties they're all in and around the edge of the Athabasca Basin where we've had a great deal of success finding near surface mineralization our PLS uh, project that hosts the triple R deposit is a in fission uranium is a, is a great example of a near surface deposit it's um, you know the mineralization starts at 50 meters below the surface, so 150 feet below the, the present-day surface is where the high-grade mineralization starts. That makes it a uh, potentially open pitable deposit, which is generally low-cost and gives you a lot of flexibility. So this is the sort of thing that we're looking for in Vision 3.0. We've got very good properties that are in known mining districts around... Um, we have a, a good portfolio of ground around the uh, the southwest side of the basin where our PLS project in Fission Uranium is, is hosted and also NextGen's Aero deposit that's all in that same area. We have a significant land package that surrounds that area. Um, we also have a, a good strategic land package in and around the Key Lake area in the southeast side of the basin. This has been and still... Uh, currently is uh, the hotbed of, of uranium mining in Canada right now. This is the, the side of the basin where the MacArthur River deposit is, where the Cigar Lake deposit is. Those are two that, well, other than MacArthur shut down for economic reasons, uh, waiting for higher uranium prices, it was an operating mine up until about uh, a year ago. Uh, and Cigar still is in operation. Then you've also got the Key Lake Mine. So it's a, a strategic area to have a good land package. We think there's lots of opportunities in and around land in, in that area to make a new discovery. And, and probably third uh, for us is, is the land package that's up in the north uh, west side of the basin in the old Uranium City Beaver Lodge district where Uranium mining in Saskatchewan first got started back in the 1950s and was, uh, you know, the going concern back in the in the 50s and the 60s. I think there was about 52 operating mines up in that area. You know, pretty small scale, most of them, but still lots of high-grade uranium. So that's an area where we think that there's still plenty of exploration potential. And, um, you know, between all those areas, I think we'll... Uh, we're going to be active and we're going to be looking for the next high-grade uranium deposit in Saskatchewan. Speaking of being active, is there active drilling going on right now on these projects? There is active drilling. You know, we did drill on our um, in the southwest side of the basin. We were drilling in January on our PLN project. Now, that project is just immediately north of Fission Uranium's PLS project. So you're really talking about the same area where the latest discoveries have been found, where you've got the triple R deposit, you've got NextGen's Aero deposit. These are two of the best new deposits that have been found in the Athabasca Basin in the last 15 years. And um, so we have a, a package around there called PLN, and we did drill six holes in there earlier this year. Um, it's a, you know it has the potential to host another one of these fantastic deposits. So we are going to continue looking there. We see all the signs present that, that tell us that this is a really good project of merit. Um, hopefully, we'll make that discovery. 
as we're speaking right now, we're uh, drilling over in the Key Lake area, as I described earlier. This is over in the southeast side of the of the basin, about 200 kilometers to the east of, of the uh, PLS building. Um, and that is a program where we'll, we'll drill probably eight or nine holes uh, just south of the Key Lake Mill and the old historic Key Lake deposit. So there's areas of activity there. Um, and we'll continue drilling, you know, throughout the, the rest of 2019 on, uh, on a number of our projects. So, you know, we're active. We were able to raise a, some significant money um, earlier in, uh, in the year, in late 2018. And so we're, we're going to be active. This is how we've been successful in the past is by being aggressive, looking in places where people probably haven't looked for a while or never even thought to look and um, putting our uh, our technical team to work. So, yes, you'll see pretty good news flow out of Fission 3 this year. Ross, let's expand the narrative on the Project Bank portfolio and go south into Peru. What can you share with us there? Sure. Well, Peru is a, a really interesting area. It's called the um, World projects are is an area called the Matisani Plateau, and it's down in southern Peru, somewhere, you know, pretty near the Bolivian border. Um, the Matisani Plateau has uh, shown at least over 100 million pounds in, in, uh, in near-surface uranium deposits. Um, there's a, a company down there that's, that's quite dominant called uh, Plateau Energy. Now, Plateau have been able to stake a lot of the old consolidated land package in there that, that's, uh, you know, consolidated all these old deposits. And so they've, uh, they've amassed uh, around 100 million pounds of uranium in, in these uranium deposits. However, even more significant, I think, and uh, recently uh, they've made a discovery of high-grade lithium in in the same area and in fact that's within five kilometers of our southern property boundary on our Magnusani claims and so not only do we have the potential now to host uranium deposits near surface uranium deposits and we have shown in fact that we do have mineralization on our property for uranium we, we've mapped it we've drilled we've trenched and, and found high-grade uranium but now the potential's there for hosting high-grade lithium uh, and so this is really a, a new dimension that, that we have down in, in that area that we wouldn't have had say two or three years ago when we were last down drilling so you've got uranium and now we have lithium and uh, so that's um, it, it's a, a very interesting up-and-coming area as well Switching gears, Fission 3.0 has the right projects in the right place at the right time. But that's only part of the story. Equally important are the people that are responsible for increasing shareholder value. Mr. McElroy, please introduce us to your board of directors. Right. Well, thank you, and I appreciate that. We do have a very successful team. Um, you know, the, our founder of, uh, of Fission 3.0 is also the same CEO and founder of Fission Uranium and, you know, previously Fission Energy before that and Strathmore. So Deborah and Halle, uh has been involved in this company right from the get-go in um, its first iteration back in 19, 
96, and, and also heading up Division 3.0. Um, Deb, what would he be, the longest-running uh, CEO in, in the uranium sector, I guess um, you could say. And uh, myself, I've been involved with, uh, with Deb for 12, 13 years now. We've had a great, successful relationship. Um, you know, where we're able to raise money, raise attention, put that money to work, make discoveries, and basically build shareholder value right from the bottom up. Now, this is, um, you know, the, the, the group that I think, you know, we've been able to deliver in the past, and, and we're going to be able to deliver shareholder value as we move forward in this much improving uh, uranium sector. So, you know, some a lot of the same players that we've had all the way along, we still um, still keep also in the Fission 3 group. Who is on your management team? So the management team, Deborah and Hal is our CEO and chairman. Uh, I am the, uh, the chief operating officer and also the chief geologist. So um, sort of the same structure that we have in Fission Uranium is the same that we have in Fission 3.0. It's a fairly lean team. We have uh, Phil Morehouse as president of Vision 3.0. You know, we've kept a a pretty lean, mean machine in uh, in Vision 3. Um, Don't forget, we've had, up until just recently in the last six months, it's been a very quiet company. There hasn't been a lot of exploration activities in the uranium sector. I think as we start to ramp up and you know, with our level of activity increasing, we'll start to draw more and more people into uh, into uh, into roles and developing roles within the company as we you know begin to be active, get out, and start marketing the story more, get on the ground and and uh, back that up with real results. We're going to continue to build our team. You know, before we move on to your impressive technical team, in the natural resource space, it's wise to follow proven winners. Ross, you alluded to it earlier. You and CEO Dev Rendhauer have a proven pedigree of success. How were shareholders rewarded as far as returns uh, for their loyalty to sticking with your team? Well, if you um, owned the original company at the beginning, which would have been Strathmore Minerals, and you'd held on to it, all the way throughout, uh, back since 19, well, so over the last 20 years, since about 1996, 97, you probably own about five different companies right now. So what's happened is we've moved on to a new phase. We've made discoveries, advanced projects, sold different uh, different projects to different groups. What we've been able to do is form new companies, split off new companies in, in what they call a butterfly transaction. So. You know, you still have uh, you have shares in the new company, still maintain your shares in the old company. So you would have uh, received essentially what would look like dividends in the way of different shares for five different companies since that time. Uh, so, we, you know, the, the shareholders that have been loyal and sticking with us have, have, would have succeeded quite handsomely all the way along. Your technical team is exceptional. I had an opportunity to meet them in the summer of 2016 at a uh, site visit there. Please introduce us to them. Sure, you're right. And uh, we're very, very proud of this group. This has been the the team. We've had, um, you know, the, the same core group of people uh, with us since 2010. 
when we, you know, with that same group, we were able to make our discovery on the Waterbury Lake project and then followed up in 2012 with the discovery of PLS. And they're the same group that are, uh, that are very core and important to us in Fission 3.0. So uh, I do head up the, the team and the technical group. So I would be the uh, team leader or chief geologist um, for the technical team in my right hand uh, guy is a fellow named Raymond Astley. He's the VP of Exploration. Ray is a, an excellent geoscientist that uh, I've had the pleasure to work with for over 30 years in this in this sector. So we've been working pretty close together. Uh, and definitely a proven mind finder. Um, and we've uh, basically held this the same group of people together on on the you know the project managers. Um, uh, the all the, the structural scientists, the geochemists, we've kept the same core group together over the last almost 10 years or so. And, so, and to me, that's really the key. You want a, a team that works together well, um, good chemistry with each other, and uh, you know the, the ability in the environment to think outside of the box. And really the goal for each and every one of us is to responsibly make world-class discoveries so that's what we're all about and uh, so you know we've got a, an excellent team all the, uh, the the key people are listed on the website you'll you'll be able to go there and see you know the roles of, of the various group there in the, in the technical team but you know it's about seven or eight of us i think that have, that uh have been able to you know be what i consider the core team for the last decade or so Let's get into some numbers. Please share your capital structure. Sure. Well, in um, in Vision 3.0, we have 142 million shares outstanding. Uh, we uh, were able to raise this, you know, a, a significant amount of money back in in 2018. So, um, with that, we have. You know, just uh, under seven million dollars in the treasury right now. That'll allow us to be active over the next two years or so. So, um, yeah, that's our that's our share structure. What is your burn rate? The burn rate, because it's exploration, it's pretty uh, discretionary spending. I, as I say, I think we'll, um, you know, with our seven million dollars that we have in, in the uh, treasury right now, that'll certainly carry us over the next two to three years of, of uh, fairly aggressive exploration spending on, on our key projects. So, you know, we can dial that kind of number up and we can uh, dial it back as, as conditions warrant. So that's that's the, the benefit of being in exploration. Your burn rate is actually pretty minimal. In other words, we, we run a pretty lean shop as far as um, – you know, the, the number of, of management and, and corporate costs, and really the majority of the costs are exploration spending, of which is uh, really entirely uh, discretionary. How much debt do you have? We have no debt. Um, we've not taken on any debt. Basically, the money that we've raised have been through uh, equity share offerings, so no debt in Fission 3.0. Who are your major shareholders and what is their level of commitment? You know, when we spun off Vision 3.0 back in December of, of 2014, 
um, it was the, the same shareholders that were shareholders of Fission Uranium were uh, the same shareholders in Fission 3.0. So, you know, we would have um, had a lot of the same loyal large shareholders, including J.P. Morgan, uh, even our uh, investment from um, from others that we've had along the way. It's it's been the same loyal group. Um, we have uh, significant new shareholders, I think, now with uh, with the financing that we did back in 2018, which was led by uh, the Sprott Global Resources Group um, out of California. So I think we have some new players back to the game, but we have a, a lot of uh, shareholders that have been with us for over the long, the long haul. Um, these are people that I that have a, a good vision of the, of the uranium sector. They know that the good times uh, are, you know, we, are around the corner, and you know, it's just a, a point that we that we believe very strongly, and we think that the sector is improving a, a great deal. And so, this is how you know our loyal shareholders are going to be rewarded by being in a much better market with an aggressive team like Vision 3.0, and the new shareholders, um, you know, will, will probably be long-term loyal shareholders too if we're successful and, and able to build build value uh, for them as well. What is the float? Fully diluted, we have uh, 227 million shares out. So we've got shares outstanding. You've got options and warrants that, that were part of, of financing as well. So 227 million shares out in total. And uh, we trade around 240,000 shares a day. I think that's our average volume. Multi-layered question. What is the next unanswered question for Fission 3.0? When can we expect a response and what determines success? Well, we are going to be successful through work. Um, you know, we're, we, we know that a better market will, should buoy the price up, you know, of, of everybody involved in the nuclear sector anyways. Uh, they're starting to get some life back in the exploration world, but really we've always built success value by our success. So, you know, we've been successful at making discoveries. We now have the money. We have the team. We're putting them to work. Um, I would look to uh, look to us as, as being one of the, you know, the, the most dynamic uh, uranium explorers out there. And, and that's something that I think people can follow. They can see our news release cycle. They'll see how we're marketing our story. And, uh, and you know, and just, just look at the results. I think they'll speak for themselves. Active, and we're looking at our projects. We'll, we'll be active throughout the calendar year. I think the news flow will be very strong and steady. And so, you know, people that are interested in following the company will always see that, uh, you know, there, there's a continuing narrative out there. We want to take advantage of this improved uranium market, the fact that we are well-financed and we have the properties that we want to explore. Uh, I think there's a very good opportunity for, uh, for your followers to look at Fission 3.0 as, uh, as a sector leader in the uranium exploration business. Mr. McElroy, last question. What did I forget to ask? Well, uh, what did you forget to ask? I think we've covered a lot of ground here and a lot of important ground. I think that 
you know, one of the, the takeaways that I want um, listeners to, to know is that we really do believe in the, in the, you know, the, the nuclear sector. We think that we have turned the corner and that conditions are improving. So, you know, if, if people are looking to invest in, in the uranium sector, um, I think it's important for them to look at a, uh, at a group that has done it before. Your track record is very indicative of, of what your uh, future record, you know, has the potential to look like. I always find myself when I'm, when I'm investing, I like to back teams that, with a proven track record. We have that in our group. We've got a, an exceptional management team. We've done it before. We've been able to, uh, you know, capitalize on our discoveries by selling assets, and we have a, a unique technical team that has the ability to make discoveries. So better sector, very good team, uh, strong management. Those are the ingredients we need to be successful. Ross, for someone listening that wants to get more information about Fission 3.0, please share the website address. Sure. Our uh, website address is www.fission3corp.com. So that's the number three, fission3corp.com. For direct queries, email ir at fission3corp.com or you may call 778-484-8030. That number again is 778-484-8030. 8030. Fission 3.0 trades on the TSXV symbol FUU and on the OTC symbol FISOF. For audience, we have been proud shareholders of Fission 3.0 since 2014. Last but not least, please visit provenandprobable.com for mining insights and bullion sales. You may reach us at contact at provenandprobable.com. Ross McElroy of Fission 3.0. Thank you for joining us today on Proven and Probable. Thank you for joining us today on Proven and Probable. Remember to like and subscribe for more conversations with the most respected names in the natural resource space. Check out our website at www.provenandprobable.com. The information presented on Proven and Probable is provided for educational and informational purposes only, without any express or implied warranty of any kind, including warranties of accuracy, completeness, or fitness for any particular purpose. The information is not intended to be and does not constitute financial, investment, or trading advice, or any other advice. You should not make any financial, investment, or trading decision based on any of the information presented without first undertaking independent due diligence and consultation with a professional broker or competent financial advisor.